Say it, man. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Three Dogs North is an attempt to objectify the subjective with little violence as possible. The following has been torn from its origins in space and time and put entirely at your disposal. So yeah, okay. in the Chris Bradley book? <clears throat> yeah, it's very interesting how it tells the story, but I like it a lot. Um, the style, I took a little bit of getting used to the style. But, uh, man, there's something about, and I know it's, it's remembering him, you know, so they're going to talk nostalgically in some ways and they loved him, but there's something, there's something to it of like so many of these big time, like brains and comedians that are talking about him will say over and over again. Yeah. There was just something about Farley. Like that was just funny. Mm -hmm. Um, but there's very few words to it. I don't, did you notice that when you read it? Of like they don't really have their finger on it to like articulate what it was, and once in a while they'll even say like it's hard to describe. But just when you met him, you were like, "This guy's funny." Mm-hmm. I, I don't have much past that. It's just interesting to read. Yeah, uh, it's been a while since I read it, but I, I do remember one thing striking me that I think it was Alec Baldwin or some big name actor basically said, and I think Baldwin was on SNL with him a lot, so it might have been him. Said he could have won an Oscar. Chris Farley could have won an Oscar if he had... Uh, he was supposed to be in a movie about Fats McGee or Chubbs, whatever, like some old-time comedian that was kind of known for being overweight. Hmm. Um, but it was going to be a serious movie, kind of like a introspective piece on being a fat guy in comedy. Hmm. Um, and apparently he just... Yeah, he had that charisma. Uh, he used it for mostly like pratfalls and slapstick stuff which is hilarious and we loved him for it. But there's another one that stuck with me too is remember the Patrick Swayze bit that he did, the Chippendale dancer thing, Mm -hmm. Um, which is one of the classic bits, but it was either Chris Rock or Tim Meadows. It's Chris Rock. I think I know what you're going to say. One of his close friends and classmates on SNL um, said that that was basically like the turning point where he decided like, yeah, I'm going to make my bread and butter being look at me. I'm fat. Isn't that fat? Isn't that funny and ugly because oh, the end of that skit was was uh i think kevin nealon saying like <coughs> uh we're gonna go with so-and-so the patrick swayze character because you know he's got a good body and you're overweight or you know it wasn't like the joke should have been that chris farley won because you know he was just as good at dancing like that was what was funny about that um but he basically made himself the butt of the joke and thereby kind of like sealing this sad fate um Hmm. which I, I thought was int- I've thought about that a lot I wrote a song about Chris Farley that Blaha it's Blaha's favorite song of mine and I can't remember it now and I didn't write it down um, after reading that book because it, it was very deeply sad it um, is it is very sad because he really was a good soul mm-hmm. there were nuns in, in New York not far from the studio that knew him as the volunteer that would can, come like go to mass and do the soup kitchen and stuff and really sort of Catholic I didn't guy. know that yeah. Yep. Yeah, he would say apparently he did that when he moved to Chicago, when he got on at Second City, and then when he moved to New York as well, is that he like he had his apartment and then he had in like a walking distance from that, he would have like the studio, the a church that he would join and like practice at a bar 
and like a deli or a place to eat at. Mm-hmm. And that was just kind of like he would just kind of create his world in those, like wherever he was there. Wow. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, some of it is hilarious to, to read. And then some oh, yeah. of it is like, I mean, heart wrenchingly sad to just to like, they just do a good job, like through the stories of getting into, man, like this guy, he was larger than life, man. And he just wanted, like, had this deep insecurity about him as well. And, just kind of this like rabid desire to please. Yeah, they said that you know that accepted. bit where he's the Chris Farley show where he's just this really self conscious, shy interviewer. That's they said it's the most authentic. That's thing. like what he actually was like. Yep. Wait, yep. what? What is that? Where he like interviews Paul McCartney? Because it's hey, it's hey, literally called remember, the Chris Farley show. Do you remember yeah. when you you said the love you take is e- equal to the love you make? Paul McCartney goes, yeah, I remember that, Chris. Is, uh, is that true? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I believe it's true. I found it to be true in my life. It's like, that's awesome. <laughs> that's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah. they said that that's most authentically Chris Farley. Yeah, like that was what his actual personality was like in front of celebrities. And some yeah. of, yeah, there's some of like the read-throughs as well. Like I just read last night a story about a read-through they were doing. Um, or it was, and it's like a read through and then like a writing, just kind of brainstorm session. And they said he would hardly ever, like possibly never, he would come up with anything. Um, but his, yeah, just kind of like uniquely kind of like once in a generation gift was be able to adapt in front of an audience, like, like nobody else. So if you gave, they said, if you gave him anything, like if you gave him any type of seed, then he could run with it and he would like it was just so uniquely him and so gifted at it. But there was a story of him and they were throwing out ideas and a couple of people threw out different ideas. And it was something like that. Like shyly, he kind of said like, um, yeah, like what if there were, uh, like rich people and then poor people. (laughs) And like, that was it. That's all he could get out of like an idea for a comedy skit on like SNL. Yeah. And they were like, okay. <laughs> but it was like, that was just him. Yeah, um, he wasn't a writer. He was a no. performer. Yeah. And yeah, I think I remember that that paragraph. I, yeah, was it, it might have been Dan Aykroyd of saying like, he might have been kind of saying his opinion. His opinion is that like the best N- SNL um, like figures of all time were people that were, instead of comedians that were acting, they were they when they actually get funny actors and mm-hmm. i think that's how he understood farley was like yeah. he's actually an actor like he's that talent level but he just happens to be one of the funniest guys like ever mm-hmm. um it's very interesting um but gosh darn he's a tormented figure and even in skits where he wasn't the main guy yeah he would make like what was memorable about the skit was his line like <laughs> like the, the pepper boy skit remember that it's kind of a gross stupid dumb skit but <laughs> it's just i think rob schneider's the pepper boy at this restaurant he's got this big pepper grinder and he's he'd go up to the table and he goes fresh and pepper say when and <laughs> chris farley's <laughs> one of the guys at the restaurant and it's just like a setup for the joke and farley goes why thank you pepper boy that's the perfect <laughs> amount of pepper <laughs> we used to say that in college all the time oh man. Just, why thank you pepper boy 
Well, it's also, yeah, and think there's a lot on that of how he could steal a whole scene with one line, or if he would also, he would like, it was very common for him to make the other actors laugh, even mm-hmm. if he didn't have a line. And so, and that I guess that's part of his genius, is that how he could adapt to, especially like before the SNL stuff, is a lot of times, even at pretty high levels, they'll kind of just do the same skits over and over. But he would be able to adapt to, in make a sense, like, well, both make it funnier, but also make it entertaining and fun for the rest of the cast. Yeah. Because it, like, kept them on their toes. Hmm. Um, so, like, very interesting, um, just the level that he was he was at with, um, with everything. But they also, the other interesting thing, too, is I haven't gotten to the part when it debuts on SNL, but it, he started it, apparently, at Second City. But just the way, again, like legendary comedians will talk about um, the the Matt Foley motivational speaker skit with like, you can just hear the reverence in how they write about it. Mm-hmm. It was like, this is just something different that is one of like the all time great comedy skits ever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's so funny, though. Yeah. And they said that like the, literally other actors um, said he would do that every night in Chicago. And the actors that had seen it a hundred times would be like keeled over laughing the hundredth <laughs> time they saw it. Isn't that amazing. Yeah. It's like, wow, that's, yeah, there's something there. Yeah. You have to, especially with like the constantly entertaining, keeping the other crew members like lively, even though they do the skits night in and night out, or like how he could adapt basically anything on the fly. I, I wonder if his like intuitive people reading skills was just off the charts. Like he could just see people and kind of get right at their funny bone and adapt to any group right in front of them. Cause you have to know your, your audience in some way to, to, to play to it and, mm-hmm. and to really get them. You got to know what they find funny and to pick that up in somebody like that quickly night in and night out. Yeah, that's. I bet he could intuitively read people like nobody's business. Hmm. Well, I just found interesting about the man himself was how insecure he was from the time he was a kid, and I, I think like getting on stage. I can't remember the details of the the biography, but at some point he got on stage in middle school or high school and made some people laugh, and it was like you hear a lot of performances performers say it, it was just this euphoric feeling. Mm-hmm. that they had to go chase after um, because he always, <clears throat> I think, felt like he didn't really fit in. I mean, he played sports. He was a good football player. He played rugby in college, and he had friends and stuff. But um, like all of us at that age, adolescence, you're like, who am I? How do I fit into this whole thing? Do people like me? And uh, he could be someone totally different on stage, you know, and make all his insecurities things that people – delighted in you know um like his weight or or whatever um so yeah in in some ways he was a genius in other ways he was such a broken uh person Mm -hmm. yeah it was adapted out of an insecurity yeah yeah i I mean honestly that reminds me of the rodman documentary as well Hmm. um they that i mean they would talk about how he was like the first guy to you know, give his shirt off his back. And actually the first time he went to jail, (laughs) 
He stole watches from an airport and gave them all away. Huh. He he didn't even keep them. He, he I just didn't even wanted... know that. Dennis Rodman, I guess it, it makes sense that he went to jail, but I don't remember that. Well, he he was like 16. It was before oh. it was before he even started playing in college. It may have been before he even started playing basketball, mm-hmm. you know. Um but that was like he stole a bunch of airport watches so that he could give them away to other people just to make them happy, like to, mm. to please them as well. Yeah. You know, there's something about that, uh, the people pleasing thing. I, I think I see in both of those guys, you're right. Um, that sort of drove him crazy, hmm. you know, not to armchair psychotherapize or whatever, but, um, I know that in me, that can be a very, uh, a very difficult feeling to deal with because it's too, we may have talked about this before and I don't know if it's a place I find ourselves or something else I was reading, but when you have the two, uh, selves fighting each other, one is I need everyone to like me. Otherwise that'll be a disaster. Um, so I have to be nice and, and attend to people and make people feel comfortable. Even when like others create conflict, you have to be the peacemaker and stuff. Um, but at the same time, if I'm only ever nice, then I'll ne- I won't be able to like put my foot down when I, you know, when I decide like, that, no, this is the right thing or, or whatever, you know, to where you're going to, your convictions make you create conflict. If you're so, um, if you're so keyed into making sure everybody is happy with you, then that creates this, uh, this dissonance and I think um, watching some of the Bulls documentary they did the Rodman one the other night and yeah he he just can't stand it can't stand people's expectations you know and it doesn't surprise me that in in his youth um, he struggled with that because he he also said like he could have done drugs he could, you know he was grew up in this bad neighborhood his mother basically kicked him out of the house when he was a teenager so he was like living in people's backyards and he had no dad um but he just got into sports uh, thank god so he pr- pretty much stayed clean as a kid um or relatively clean but then when he got dumped off of the pistons uh and the coach there chuck daly was like a really good mentor to him once that kind of faded away he went to the Spurs. He just was like, that was when he was dressing up in wedding dresses and dating Madonna and going to Vegas and staying out all night and missing games and things like that. It was He was just sick of making other people like him, you know? So he went the whole other direction. Chris Riley, I don't think ever did. He kind of, um, you know, he had the, the addiction problem. Um, mm-hmm. But even that was a little bit of performance art because there, there was one scene in that book where he's like completely annihilating this hotel room in a rager and like has this one lucid moment where he stops and it was with one of some other famous comedian. Yeah. And they're like super worried about him and he stopped doing whatever he was doing, like destroying the TV. And he just goes, do you think Belushi's in heaven? Um, and then he went back to his, his drunken rage, but he had that moment of clarity of like, he wants to be Jim, uh, I would say Jim Belushi, John Belushi, uh, who died of an overdose. He wants to be that guy, you know, but he also is worried like, 
I also, I also want to go to heaven, you know, I'm worried about mm. my soul. I don't know, dude, more torturous than all else is the human heart. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah. If you guys have other thoughts there, I'm, I'm very interested. I'm all ears or we can do a pivot here. What do you think? I think people mostly come to our podcast for the Chris Farley and, and uh, Dennis Rodman commentary. You're right. <laughs> Let's continue to dive in here. Hi, can, um, can I just point out that we've paralleled um, Dennis Rodman with both Chris Farley and with Flannery O'Connor? <laughs> that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Which name is, anybody else that has done that. Yeah, yeah that's kind it. of our interpretive key. <laughs> I like that. Um, okay, well here, yeah. If if Chris Farley, he is he's like this icon of humor in a lot of ways, or at least like '90s comedy or whatever it is. Um, so maybe that's the the thread we can draw out there to transition in the pivot. Um, but I had this thought, and we don't have to. We can see where this goes, but I was on the, I did the eight day silent retreat last week, which was time very, very well spent. Um, <clears throat> and yeah, a lot of graces still processing through from it. Um, but one of the things, it was probably on day five or so. Um, yeah, it was, and it, it helped bring the retreat. To, they were like a grace in themselves to receive. But then they were like just incredible keys to other unlocking other graces for for the retreat. But I went through and Father Welter um, helped me put some some words on on this just from a memory that came up in the retreat. But uh, I went through and just listed out from my life like and a couple were like from movies, but mostly they were from they were from memories. And it was like that is an icon of God the Father. Um, and so I'll tell you the story that came, that came up that was, it was just so good. Uh, I was at my brother's, uh, wedding reception and the priest that said that wedding is real close with my family. He actually vested me. Uh, he said the wedding for my brother and sister-in-law and he's my sister's pastor. Just awesome, awesome guy, Father Bill. And at one point, I mean, this, yeah, siblings wedding receptions are like the most fun thing ever um and it's just huge celebration and my brother brother-in-law and sister have been um like they have three kids there and are just like living living it up and um you know they've probably been married like seven years at that point and at one point in the evening somehow like they were out on the dance floor and then father bill ended up like watching all of their kids which was like not forced but just kind of like delightful and there's this picture of him that he's holding, he's got my niece, Anna, who was like one at the time, maybe not even that, six months old. And he's holding her with like a beer in his other hand, just smiling. And long story short, um, a little while later, there was some artist from Galesburg that wanted to do some, like some type of painting or collage of just kind of like, I, I, I think like influential people around town. Um, and so he asked father Bill to send him a picture that made him happy. And father Bill sent that picture of like at the wedding reception, holding my little niece, like beer in his other hand. Um, and 
I don't know. There was just something to that that, again, it's totally subjective. Like, it was an effective movement, and but it, it like, really meant a lot thinking thinking back. And, again, how that, uh, yeah, just kind of hit my heart uniquely was so good to go to go back to it. And I might need, I don't even have the story exactly straight, like, what the artist was about or anything like that of how that came up. But, anyway, I just thought that that was kind of a cool question because, like, once I started down that road in the retreat, I probably listed, like, 20 um of like do you have any icons of god from your life that just like flesh it out um for you and yeah i could i could share more but does that make sense or is there anything there for you guys to to share Hmm. yeah um it kind of makes me think of a similar thought that i had um i it must have been shortly after my eight day but that that same question just experiencing icons of God and having memories of yeah icons of God is like I I think that's what I do oftentimes in in like imaginative prayer is when those memories do come up that uh, act as icons of God for me which are you know oftentimes my father and my family and um, you know I'd, I'd really have to think about it to to flesh out one concretely right now, but um, it is like a glimpse of, which is what an icon is. It's a glimpse of heaven in reality, uh, in, in time and space. And, and that's why the whole Ignatian um, examine prayer is so dang important because I think that's literally what you're doing throughout the day like maybe asking that very question, where were the icons of God present in my life? Meaning like, where did my, where did my heart recognize heaven breaking into earth right now? Um, yeah, but I, I think that's, I, I guess that's kind of what I realized in memory prayer, put in different words. It's like, oh, this is where I'm actually recognizing God's presence here. Um, but I, I like that way of saying it, that these are icons of God um, here on earth. Yeah, but I have to think about it. I, do you have anything that comes to mind, Connor? Um, one one that comes to mind. I mentioned months ago, or maybe a, almost a year. Little girl I saw standing with her dad uh, on the sidewalk while I was stopped at an intersection, with just her the palm of her hand like on his the side of his thigh while he's like on the phone or something. Um. And she's just like looking around at the big wide world in this busy city, but she has just one hand on her dad's leg. She's not looking at him, but has her like the physical contact um, and his trust in her to not like run into traffic. And she's maybe like three, four years old. Um, there was something about that that, you know, you see people on the street all the time, but that one just. I looked at it and, you know, there's obvious analogies of our relationship to God, my relationship to God, but the icon value of something like that, why I've gone and and prayed with that occasionally um, since then, and it's still in my memory bank, is because, I mean, ultimately all of reality is an icon of God, but these glimpses, I, I remember telling that to Father Tom Dunn, do you know him? Oh yeah, Tommy Dunn. Dunn? <laughs> and uh, I had been praying with the memory, and I can't remember why I called him. It was for some other reason. And he's like, 
So where's the fire bed, man? Uh, which is such a good question. He's like, what, where, where's your fire mm. at? You know? But that's what he said. Where's your fire bed? Where's your fire at? Where's your fire at? Okay. Yeah. Like, where's it been? Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. That's a great question. Um, and I just mentioned that memory. I think it had happened that week. And he's like, he like drew some other aspect of it, of the image out for me. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the value of the icon is it's not just like a proposition, like God trusts you, you know, or you trust God or you can be in contact with him and communion or stand next to him. Or like you see a little girl in her particularity standing next to her father and his particularity. And somehow there's some, some particular grace for you in your heart, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so actually I was rereading something, um, from Surprised by Joy that, uh, you just made me think of with that icon, that, that, uh, moment for that priest. Let me see if I can find it. Find Black it, man. Quick. No, but that's, uh, priesthood. Yep. Priesthood. He was your pastor growing up too? Uh, no, no. He has been my sister's pastor um, for, gosh, 10 years, 12 years, something like that. And we've just gotten to know him like really through um, through that. And yeah, just become a really, really good family, family friend, just really solid, like loves, loves being a priest um, for all the right reasons. And deer season? Yeah. Yep. That's him. That is him. That is him. Um, and there's just something to You're right, Connor. And I think that's, I like that. There's something in the specificity towards it of that. Yeah, it just spoke. Um, gosh darn, it just spoke. It, it Like they have this ability to speak like hope and um, just deep, like consolation for lack of a better term in very particular circumstances then as, as well. Um, and so just to be able to go back to it and like think kind of what, what that has meant to me of, of that, that image, it's like, what a, what a gift, man. Like, yeah, just for that, that one moment that like is now in, in my memory and, yeah, again, like at at a deeper level even then, like what did that reveal to me about like who God is? Um So anyway, you find that from Surprised by Joy yet? Nah. Mm. Maybe it's not in the cards. Not in the cards. My internet cut in and out there. Is that, was that what that was? <laughs> Dang it, man. I have no idea why it does that. I was going to ask, is he that priest that comes down and celebrates Mass for y'all on the first day of um, of hunting season? Oh, yeah. We, that, we, that made it. So, we got that. Yes, that's the same guy. Okay, nice. Yep. Oh, that made it. Okay, good. <laughs> I've already answered that, Mike. Come on. Excuse me. I found it. <clears throat> he says, but what then in conclusion of joy? Um I know now that the experience considered as a state of my own mind had never had that kind of importance I once gave it. It was valuable only as a pointer to something other and outer. While that other was in doubt, the point naturally loomed large in my thoughts. He who first sees it cries, Look, the whole party gathers round the stairs, 
but when we have found the road and are passing signposts every few miles, we shall not stop and stare. Meaning like joy, these moments of joy, these icons, are signposts toward a permanent dwelling place. Um, they will encourage us, and we shall be grateful to the authority that set them up, but we shall not stop and stare, or not much, not on this road, for though their pillars are of silver and their lettering of gold, we would be at Jerusalem. Mm. I love that. Like those moments, holding a baby, drinking a beer at a wedding, or uh, whatever beautiful feeling of like, take me now, Lord, let your servant go in peace. You know, you feel those those moments, those icons of God, but they they fade away. But I love Lewis's point in Surprised by Joy, which is that the moment you try to grasp at it or pursue it for its own sake, you stop, um, you, you, you lose the initiative. Like the moment of joy is that you're not even conscious of it. You're just lost in the, in the yeah. goodness of another person or of a moment. Well, the even moment you're like, Oh, this is a happy moment. I want to <clears> cling <throat> to it. You know, then you're like, you're outside of yourself. Yeah. Or even try to, you think about like just how it doesn't fit to like try to recreate it either. Right. You know, like, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, this is funny, but like, and I hadn't, this didn't come up in the retreat, but like when you read that, I just thought of like, how weird would it be to just like cling to it in a way that like you just want that particular thing like for you? So, like, my goal at the next wedding reception is to get my picture holding yeah, a baby. That'd be weird. Like, isn't that strange? But isn't yeah. that, like, you see, like, the clinginess that could be there in something yeah, like that? Yeah. yeah, that's a great point by Lewis. Holy cow. That's really, that really good. That, I feel like, is the problem with the holidays, <laughs> is that people have some magical memory of the ideal Christmas. Sure. And then yeah. they try to recreate it, and it's always disappointing. Yeah. It creates all this stress. Hmm. But if you let it, if you let the joy kind of find you, um, and you're not so preoccupied with being joyful, then it kind of, you know, you have to pursue the highest value and the other ones kind of come with it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I like that image of the hike to Jerusalem, which is, I mean, that's like the whole, the way image, but that's what it's, you know, signpost implies a type of a journey and a hike and um, I think when you have those experiences of joy like that, where you see icons of God, icons of heaven, it's also accompanied by a type of peace, at least in my own experience, or like, uh, like, like, oh, I can rest here, <laughs> not, not stay here, but I can rest here because there's something about seeing the signpost that lets me know, like, I'm actually where I need to be. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's, you know, maybe to tie into like another episode and a deep desire of the heart is like to be home and, oh, this is what I was made for. And so you see that and there's a joy. You can't grasp it. But yeah, that that restful feeling of like, oh, man, oh, good. I know that I actually am on the right way and that the Lord actually is with me. And that's, the I think, the joy and the peace of of the signposts of heaven right there yeah you have those moments you're like man everything's a mystery but i know exactly where i'm supposed to be and that's Mm. that's such a peaceful experience Mm. that's cool you guys did retreats while you're uh on this during these unprecedented times (laughs) (laughs) it's time well spent i'll say Hmm. Yeah, so did you spend a lot of time with 
like specifically icons of the father? Um, <clears throat> uh, they kind of, like I said, that was that was towards the latter part, but they were just, um, yeah. I mean, the retreat certainly was just again like renewing and then receiving in a much deeper way, honestly, in my own heart, the goodness of God as as a father. Um, and, and realizing that it, again, just, it feels like it's, it's new, um, that good dads want to be good dads. Um, and I just like, I, I, I don't know that that was kind of the phrase that, um, that kept and it kind of ended again, not to share too much, but, um, there's. In T.S. Eliot, the four quartets, like the very last, I think it's on like the very last page and one of the very last few lines of it, he talks about, um, there's this line in it, at least, that says, at the end of all our exploring, like we'll arrive at the place we started and know the place and know it for the first time. Um, so that's kind of how it felt like, again, uh, just being called back to like the basics and and going to God as a father. It's like, man, you, you get back to this place and like, you know it as new, um, and you kind of know it for the first time. And, and I think that just, you know, a retreat is that kind of privileged time to just let the silence help you like realize nuances and, and really kind of some stuff that's hard to notice in the go, go, go and stuff that's built up over time and, um, just allow yourself a little, Yeah, a little time with a dad that loves you, a um, little reset is is pretty dang good. So I was telling you before, Mike, that was the like the feeling towards the end of it was youthful, like it it kind of breathes breathes youthfulness um, back into you, and um, it was it was good. It was really really good. So, um, but those icons were really they were a really fun part of it. I will say because they were so particular and concrete in my own life that I was just able to list them and then go back and then just kind of let, let the Lord reveal. Um, yeah. And I mean, it wasn't always easy. It was stuff that like, no, I got to be honest here and say that like, I've been like this aspect of the last year has actually been kind of tough and disappointing and like harder than I thought it would be. Um, but I can be there with him, um, in it. And, um, yeah, so I can share I can share more, but they were they were very like they were a very fun part of the retreat. Hmm. Yeah, I had well, yeah, it was it really was a blessing to be able to do that. Um I and it even the graces from that eight day, I mean, it's been three or four weeks and they're still just unfolding and um God's just re- still revealing what he was doing in the retreat and just trying to go back to those places and, you know, these fonts of grace there. Um, but I, I had a big shift in my retreat about midway when, you know, it's crazy. Like how many times you say these things and, and you can know these things, but then when you really experience it, uh, how it becomes known in a new way where I, I, I just kind of like quit trying to fix myself. <laughs> <laughs> which I know we say it all the time on the podcast and I say it to people all the time. Like you don't need to be fixed. You need to be loved. And finally just accepted that, uh, the whole, 
the whole retreat just took this huge shift. It, it became all became a gift. I feel like I had to just simply receive and to um, like give and receive love from the father. And yeah, it, it was an absolute game changer. But I don't know if I've shared this on the podcast before, but I've come up with a phrase. Have I told you about this? The anti-trinity? No. Well, maybe. Mm-hmm. Remind uh, me. Yeah. The anti-trinity. It's right. Well, we've talked about it in roundabout ways, but it's basically how I was praying and how I, <laughs> how I'm probably already back to praying right now. But it's when I come to prayer and I sit in front of Jesus and I talk to me about me <laughs> and my own problems. <laughs> like, <laughs> Just this self-obsessed, it's the anti-trinity, me talking to me about me and hoping that God um, plays a part in this algorithm of self-perfection and like, Mm. okay, God, I know that you're a part in here. I know that, (laughs) which is not actually true. He's not a part in there, Um, but like really just trying to use him to perfect myself and like that's none of that's real that's not real it's not true and so it's like coming into it in like a fantasy lie land and then you know those retreats they just blow all that stuff away man and it it feels so easy like you said that breath of youthfulness it's like you can just feel somebody breathing away the fog and then there's clarity there and um and then just spending time in in communion with the lord is such a dang gift man it, it Reminds you who you are and reminding me how to pray, like how to yeah. sit and be in communion with God again. And holy cow, it was such a gift. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So I quit, I quit trying to, to fix myself and, um, trying to make myself a project, you know, and, and trying to use God like an element in the project of self perfection. Mm. Um, and simply like just was with him and trusted him and was just in communion with him and it and it's weird like externally everything is exactly the same you know he like nothing in in my situational circumstances changed at all and yet everything looks different because it's like no i'm this is coming from a place of of being loved and and loving the lord and it changes the whole uh, value of of the world that you see around it. Yeah. So that was a, it. Was a great it was a great grace, man. Great blessing. Yeah. Mm. Couldn't have said it better myself. I talked to me about me. Talk to yeah. me about me. That's good. That's man. That's really good. Oh, ding mm. dong, dude. That's not praying. That's the, I do that all the time. <laughs> so Until Mike, this retreat, that's how I pray for like the last year. <laughs> well, Mike, what are we going <clears> to <throat> fix today? Well, we got a whole slew of things. Let's go through <laughs> the list. Okay. Oh, yeah. It's so <laughs> weird. You, you'll be, you'll be doing something like that for minutes or an hour. And then there's just like one moment where. Uh, it's so it's so mysterious because it's grace, but it's also you cooperating and having to respond somehow in the depth of your being to actually relate to God 
into the totality of being. And it's something so simple, like just looking at a picture of the Sacred Heart of Jesus or something, or or going back to some memory and inviting him in. And there's like, yeah, that that refreshment or openness to all of a sudden, it's like somebody walking in the room, like a friend coming in to your solitary confinement and uh, putting out the atmosphere of of another, you know? And you're just mm. like, yeah, that's right. I'm not by myself here. That's like the ultimate hell mm. is to just be you talking to you about you forever. You know, um, like you said, it's so simple and easy once the fog lifts, but it's weird, man. It's just like this constant battle that's not <clears throat> one that's won by trying. Uh, that's why, like, when you read Merton, I read New Seeds of Contemplation for STL. Um, you know that thing where they have you read a bunch of books and then they ask you about it, like oral exams or something? Yeah, I did so bad on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You should not have passed me. <laughs> that was one of my books. And it, it was just like Merton talking about how contemplation is not something you do, it's something God does. But also, it's something you have to do. And but it's if you are doing it, then you're doing it wrong because it's God doing it. And it's just like that for mm. 300 pages. Good gravy. And you're like, what is it? You know, <laughs> and, and I get when people people want really straight answers about stuff in spiritual direction or even just like asking about like, what's the deal with the second coming or whatever? You're like, well, it's kind of complicated. <laughs> like, how much time uh, do you have? <laughs> uh, not in the sense that it's like, you have to have a degree to understand it, but it, it's like th these mysteries are something so interior, you know, um, the kingdom of God is within you. Um, yeah, but how do you get there? How do we build it? How do I, how do I feel different? Like, uh, feel what you're feeling, first of all. Uh, yeah you know what I okay mean? so look baron he just put out a new video it's kind of blowing up on the youtubes and uh it's bishop baron responds to cuomo's like on on the existence on the nature of god or something like that and he says not quite as well as we're saying it but basically the <laughs> exact same things that we're saying uh cuomo's line was something like um, God didn't flatten out the numbers. God didn't, um, you know, end, end this coronavirus or he didn't like take away all these cases or no miracles occurred or faith didn't do this, but the people of New York did it. Like you were the ones who did it. And of course that just puts God in this competitive framework and the baronator just went to town on it, dude. Heyday. Okay. But but he uses this line from Isaiah to kind of summarize the both and uh, relationship of God working in and through us, which there's a lot of language throughout, um, especially in the liturgy about it. But I, I've never even I've never even heard this or thought of this before. But this is from Isaiah. He says this: "For it is you who have accomplished all we have done." And that's, <laughs> for it is you who have accomplished all we have done. It's like, yeah, this is all you. But it's also all God, all simultaneously. Like, yeah, contemplation uh, is, a, is an act of God that he accomplishes in us 
that you need to do. Like, what? What does that mean? Yeah. But Baron gets at that question, um, obviously, super well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's like the second Isaiah. best Catholic resource out there. After us? <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> I just started Isaiah the other day. Man, it's, it is good. Uh, the, I usually stay away from the prophets because it's so repetitive, long, about cities that I've never heard of and like conflicts and things with kings. It's hard to keep it all chronologically straight too, but that whole idea in Isaiah, his call is what I was with, reading today when he sees the, the Lord and his majesty and his train is filling the entire temple, you know, and uh, that's when he gets called and he's like, I'm a man of unclean heart. And the angel comes down with the coal and burns his lips. And the way that the NIV explains it in the beginning is like he, he the whole prophet Isaiah is basically seeing the majesty of God in contrast to the the sin of human beings, the pettiness of man. And he, as the prophet, has been gripped by this truth of who God is and his majesty and his being. And now he sees all of our failure to recognize that or live up to it as uh, so much dross. You know, so then like the beginning of that thing about the vineyard, let me sing of my friend. That's one of my favorite Bible lines. Uh, the prophet is like, let me sing of my friend. He made my, the vineyard, he cleared it of stones and planted the vine and made the tower and the wine press and all it made was wild grapes. What did I do wrong? You know, like his whole attitude towards God and our failure is informed by that. It's not like a re- religious rigorism, like you need to be better, do better. It's just like, look at how good God is. Could we not respond a little bit more, you know, to that goodness? Um, beautiful. Yeah, it's just so hard because it's so tempting to just look at everything based on their successes and, you know, the fruits, the fruits of things. Mm-hmm. And like, I mean, that was a large portion of of how people viewed God's presence. And I think we still do like this primal intuition that we have where if, if things are good, then God is there. And when things are not going well, well, dag nabbit, like what do I need to do to fix mm-hmm. it? But to view God's presence in a place where even things are not good or things are not great, that's, that's really hard. Hashtag truth. Sounds like we figured it out. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I kind of got a little bit of a heart out here. What do you got going on? Uh, Super secret stuff. Totally. You know what I mean? I get that. Mm -hmm. How about you guys? What do you have the rest of the day? Somebody's bringing me friendship bread What's that they that? baked. I, your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> I'm assuming it's bread <laughs> that they make for friends. Nice. Uh, yeah, I think it's called Amish friendship bread. And then I have a phone call with the army and then a phone call with some priest buddies tonight. Nice. nice. Video? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Some zooming. And Zoom. I also started Little Women, which was oh. a, a, How a is gift. It? 
it's awesome, man. Isn't it good? I'm enjoying it. I'm not I'm not very far into it, but I am enjoying it. Mm. It's a good book. I'm looking at Amish Friendship Bread. Yeah, it looks pretty much like bread. Good. I'm going to eat peanut butter and jelly with it. Actually is bread? Oh, nice. It actually looks kind of like coffee cake or, or like banana bread, kind of. That's good. What do you got this afternoon, Rob? Um, Let's see. One other call in a little bit, then the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. Nice. Um, another, and one, one other appointment, actually, right before that. And then, um, yeah, that's it. That's it. Should be a pretty free evening, actually. Might go. It's beautiful here, so I think it's supposed to rain tomorrow and get cold. So I probably go for a jog in the evening. Nice evening jog. An evening jog. Nice. Yeah. Hey, well, let's cut the, it then. Let's yeah, cut yeah. It. Three Dogs North are Juice, Seabisc, and Michael Metz. Conversations have been edited to sound smarter. Audio and transcripts of this episode are exclusive property of Mundelein Seminary and may not be rebroadcast without the express written consent of Major League Baseball. Good girl.